You know, church, I love how the Lord loves to work in ways that nobody sees coming. That God will often work in unexpected ways through unexpected people. We see this in the nation of Israel, the smallest and weakest of the world nations, Deuteronomy 7, 7. And yet it is through the nation of Israel that God would send forth his son, true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God would choose the weakest of the families of Manasseh and choose the youngest son, Gideon, and raise him up to be the leader to shepherd Israel forward in the midst of hardship and difficulty. That God would whittle an army from 32,000 men down to 300 as they go do battle against the Midianites and declare victory over their enemies. That God would raise up the youngest son of Jesse to go and defeat Goliath and to be king and ruler over the people of Israel. That God would raise up a family, a poor young family from backwoods Israel. And the birth filled with scandal, God would bring forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That God loves to work in unexpected ways through unexpected people. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 16, we see where God raises up and is working in and through very unexpected people in unexpected ways. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. We see in Acts 16 that the gospel has reached the shores of Europe. That the gospel has taken root, a church is planted, and we see the gospel is working in and through these people. And as we're walking through the book of Acts, we're seeing how the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed spreading. What began in Jerusalem spread out to Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. We have seen where the church has now made its way into Europe through four men. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke. Last week, we saw the first European believer was a woman named Lydia. After she put her faith in Jesus, she was baptized with her whole household. She opened up her home as a Philippian headquarters for this mission team. And then she hosts the first European church plant in Philippi there in her house. Now, this is a tremendous start to the European mission trip for Paul and his teammates. The Spirit leads them to the Gangites River. They see salvation. People are baptized. A church is planted. Boom, we're off to the races. Well, the fantastic start to this new work takes a drastic turn in Philippi as Paul stirs up some controversy through an exorcism. But what Satan meant for evil... God meant for the good of his people, the fame of his name, and the salvation of the lost. And that's what we see happening in Acts 16, beginning with verse 16. And the scripture says this. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. 
Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped them of their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. And they they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and us escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them. And escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. I want you to notice in the text how Jesus is at work in and through His people and what this means for us today. The first thing I want you to see in the text is this. I want you to see the power of Jesus over demons. The power of Jesus over demons. One fine Philippian day, Paul and his team are headed to a small group prayer meeting with the church, and a slave girl who was demon-filled, a fortune teller, starts yelling at Paul and his team. And for many days, this demon-possessed girl kept making a scene, screaming at them and declaring who they are. But did you see uh, what the demon says regarding Paul and his team? Look at verse 17. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. They are servants of the Most High God. Now, there are several truths I want you to grab hold of as a believer this morning about what it means to be involved in spiritual warfare. 
The first is this. Demons are terrified of Jesus. Demons are terrified of Jesus. Just go read the Gospels and you will see that the demons know he is the Son of God and they shudder in fear. Secondly, man, demons know that Jesus has absolute power over them. Demons know that Jesus has absolute power over them. There is no negotiating with the Lord and sovereign Jesus Christ. They cannot negotiate. Jesus dictates to them. But thirdly, Jesus, excuse me, demons know who has Jesus in them. Let me say that again. Demons know who has Jesus in them. We're going to see this when we get to Acts chapter 19. There are these Jewish men who are trying to perform an exorcism, and the demon speaks to them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? You see, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, demons know that He abides and lives inside of you. If you are in Christ, they know who you are. Verse 17, this demon knows who these men are and what they have come to do. They've come to preach the gospel. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. What a great reminder to you and I today, beloved, is that we are in a spiritual warfare. We're in a spiritual battle every day, whether you realize it or not. And this spiritual battle that you and I are in is more real than anything we can touch, touch or imagine or tangibly grab hold of. This is a very real battle that you and I are in. And our enemy is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not another political party. Our enemy is not somebody at work who cheers for a different team. Our enemy are the principalities and the powers of the air. That we are a people who are in a spiritual battle. But the good news is, we don't have to be afraid of these spiritual battles. We can have confidence of who we are in Christ. As Paul and his team are making disciples, as they are taking new ground from the enemy, they are right in the middle of a spiritual battle. Now hear me on this. If you're, as a follower of Jesus, lukewarm, if you're living in such a way that you love the world more than you love Jesus, you are no threat to the enemy. He ain't worried about you. But if you are preaching Christ, if you are making much of Jesus amongst the nations and your neighbors, if you're shining the light of Jesus faithfully, he knows who you are. And the enemy wants to stop you. You are dangerous. Beloved, I'm not sure how much time I've got left on this earth, but as long as I've got it, I want to be dangerous against the kingdom of darkness. I want the light of Jesus to so fill me and shine through me that we take new ground, that we move forward with the gospel, that we are a gospel people, and this is who we are as a church. That we are indeed, we've, we're, I'm banging this drum over and over again, we're missionaries, all of us. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We represent Him in a world that is very, very dark. And as the world gets darker, what an opportunity for our light to shine brighter. That as the world around us walks away from truth, we stand firm with great joy and confidence knowing that we are more than overcomers through Him who loved us. That we are a people who are not afraid of tomorrow. 
regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who our boss is, regardless of the circumstances that we face in the doctor's office, we are not afraid. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, day after day, this girl would cause a scene. And Paul had enough. Verse 18. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 16, 17? And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. Beloved, we are in a spiritual battle and we must not get lulled to sleep by the enemy. And if we are going to be a faithful church, and if we are going to be a conglomeration, a gathering of faithful believers who have covenanted together, we've locked arms together saying we are marching forward in the victory of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that we are going to be taking new ground for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to be a church that plays defense. We're not going to be a church that plays management. We want to be a church that plays offense with the gospel, that we're going to take risks. We're going to try new things to reach new people with the gospel without compromising what's clearly laid out in Scripture. But we've got to be continually thinking, who can we be reaching with the gospel? How can we push forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ so those who don't know him yet will come to know him? But as we do, just as Paul and his team are advancing forward with the gospel, as they're taking new grounds, they're not surprised by spiritual warfare. And simultaneously, though we will not be surprised by it, we're not going to be afraid of it. Why? 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That indeed the Lord Jesus Christ has taken up permanent residence inside of all believers who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus is greater and Jesus is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is inside of you. He abides inside of you. And he is greater than the enemy. And so we do not fear spiritual battle because we know that we are more than overcomers. Because greater is Christ who is in us than he who is in the world. And he is our confidence. He is our joy. And Jesus, as we see in the text, is the great conqueror of the devil. Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, there's the power. Power is not found in us. The power is found in Jesus, in us, and through us as we point to Him. He sets the prisoner free. And through His finished work on the cross, He is the great deliverer for all who will trust in Him. The second thing I want you to notice in the text is the joy of Jesus in persecution. When the servant's girl's owners realize that their source of profit is gone, their cash cow is out of commission, they've lost their greatest asset, they're livid. Now this slave girl, who was a gold mine for her owners, is no longer accessible to them to be used. You see, in Greek and Roman culture, they put great stock in divination. Emperors and high-ranking military leaders would often first consult with mediums and fortune tellers before they would make a major decision. There was a lot of money in this business. 
Similar to Jesus in Mark 5, who cast the demons out of the two men in the garrisons, and they, the, the demons go into the 2,000 pigs who go down the embankment into the Sea of Galilee and drown. And what do they do? They begged Jesus to leave their territory. Why? Because he just cost them a lot of money. You see, for them, they wanted money more than they wanted Jesus. They wanted profit more than they wanted Jesus. You see, you can't love both God and money. You have to choose. You you have to choose. Well, for these men, this girl has just been set free. She's finally free of demon possession, and they're angry about it. Why? Because they've lost money. They care more that they're broke than that this girl has just experienced freedom. So they grab Paul and Silas, bring them into the marketplace to the chief magistrates, and they accuse them of disturbing the city, of being Jews who promote things that are illegal for Roman citizens to practice. You see, anti-Semitism ran pretty deep in Roman culture. The previous year before this, Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome because he thought they were troublemakers. Now that's being carried over to Paul and Silas, so they're brought into the marketplace. Let me show you what this looks like. Up on the walls, I want to show you where these magistrates are sitting. This vantage point that you see is the bema seat, the judgment seat. It would be from here that before the magistrates, now it looks like ruins today, this is where Paul and Silas would be brought that there is a mob that is taking place that is trying to kill these men. You see, the marketplace was not only a place for business and commerce, this was also a place where judgments would be made, where trials would take place. And it would be here that Paul and Silas would be brought. Instead of due process, instead of a fair trial, instead of giving these men the opportunity to plead their case, a mob mentality takes over the crowd, including the magistrates who are sitting right where you're looking. They decide to strip the missionaries of their clothes, to flog them, beat them with sticks, and throw them in jail, where the jailer puts them in the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. In fact, I got a picture of what the prison looks like where Paul and Silas were being held. It was right there. That is where Paul and Silas were being held in the stocks. Paul would later recall these moments here in Philippi when he penned 2 Corinthians 11 as he describes his suffering for the cause of Christ. But did you see in the text what Paul and Silas were doing while they were in prison? With lacerations all over their body, probably with broken bones, busted up ribs, with cramped muscles and fractures inside a dark, damp, disease-infested prison, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns. They're praying and they're singing. Oh, I love this. When you're in the midst of hardship, sing to Jesus. When you're going through the darkness of depression, you sing to Jesus. When you're laying there in the hospital bed, you sing to Jesus. You see, one of your weapons against the darkness is the gospel of hope that we get to sing. 
all that you would sing to Jesus. You would belt out from the bottom of your heart who the Lord is and what He's done for you in the Gospel. A weapon against darkness in your life as you go through trial and frustration and pain when you're faced with temptation knocking at your door. Sing to Jesus and you will find strength. The bottom of your heart, sing to the Lord. From your heart, you can declare, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. You get to sing to Jesus. And He loves to hear you sing. And you don't have to be great. You just heard it from me. But you're singing to an audience of one You're singing to the one who has rescued you and saved you from sin and death and hell and the grave. You're singing to the one who will never forget you. The one who has inscribed your name in the Lamb's book of life. You are singing to the one who gives you hope in the future. You're singing to the one who is light in the midst of darkness. He is singing to the one who is love in the midst of hate. You are singing to the one who knit you together in your mother's womb and set you apart for himself. You're singing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I say to you, when we gather in this room, it matters that you sing. And you sing with passion. Because you never know, sitting next to you, maybe somebody who's holding on to the faith by a thread. And they need to see someone singing with passion and with gusto and confidence. That we disciple one another, Paul says in Colossians through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're teaching one another to remain steadfast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Never underestimate the power of God working in and through you, singing to the Lord. And as they're there singing, it's also a mode of evangelism. Did you see who's listening? Right there in the heart of a Philippian jail is a motley crew of ruffians, prisoners, who are dead silent, listening. Listening to Paul and Silas pray. Listening to Paul and Silas sing to the Lord. And as they're singing, God does the incredible. All of a sudden, a violent earthquake shakes the prison doors open. Everyone's chains come loose. The jailer wakes up, sees the door open, draws his sword, and prepares to commit suicide. You see, in an honor-dishonor culture, in his mind, this is the better option than what he would have to face later if the prisoners had escaped. 
This shows you the kind of culture that pervaded the Roman world. But Paul saves his life and saves his soul. Paul yells out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer comes trembling before Paul and Silas and asks the most important question that you have to answer. There's nothing more important for you as an individual to answer this question right here in the text. The question right here, verse 30. You need an answer to this one. The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? There's no more important question than that. This is far more important than where you go to lunch today. This is far more important than the job you're going to take or how you're going to lead, read, lead and raise your children. What must I do to be saved? And I love the response of Paul and the brothers. And I hope that if someone were to ask you the same question, what do I have to do to become a Christian? What do I have to do to be saved? You respond with the text. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's believe, trust, put your faith in, bank your soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has come to you. Notice Paul doesn't say be religious. Paul doesn't say be a good person. Paul doesn't say be baptized. Paul doesn't say you have to do all these religious actions. No, no, no. He says believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender your life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, you are banking your soul upon the finished work of Christ. You do nothing. You're trusting in what Christ has done for you. That He lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I could not live. That He died a death that we deserved at the cross. At the cross, His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And indeed, because of what Jesus did on the cross, He has made a way for you to come before God and be restored into a right relationship, for you to be forgiven of all of your sin, for you to be adopted into the family of God. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and He will wash you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You see, we don't come to Jesus so that we might hopefully have a better life. We come to Jesus first for righteousness. Sin has separated us from God and we need something done about our sin problem. Jesus took care of it through the cross. Through the cross, Christ has made a way for you to come before the Father. And He was buried, but He didn't stay dead. On the third day, Jesus comes back to life. He defeats death physically. He raises from the dead, never to die again. He appears to hundreds and hundreds of people, proving Himself as the resurrected King. And anybody who trusts in Him by faith will be saved forever. This resurrected king then ascends up into heaven where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. Where there he remains today. He is interceding on your behalf. But there's coming a day in which the king will return and rescue all who have trusted in him. Have you banked your soul upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus? I'm not talking about a religious experience. 
I'm not saying trying to be more religious. It's what the text tells us. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the gospel that we hold fast to. This is the gospel that we continually rally around as a church. This is the gospel that we continue dive deeping, uh, diving deeper and deeper into, of studying what God has revealed through His Son, that God has made a way through His Son for us to be saved. And the good news is anybody and everybody can get in on this. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And what we see happening take root here 2,000 years ago. Right now, this same gospel is being preached all over the world. Uh This is so good, right? So think about this. That right now, there are people preaching Jesus in the four corners of the earth. That indeed... Because of the gospel, those who believe in Jesus, we are the most racially diverse religion in the world. And it's not even close. Because the gospel is not constrained to an ethnic group. The gospel is for everybody. Anybody can get in on this gospel. The gospel is flourishing in Africa, flourishing in Southeast Asia, flourishing in South America. Question is, have you believed the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? If you have not, please don't leave this campus without saying, Lord, I'm giving you my heart and my life. I'm turning away from my sin. The Bible calls that repentance. You repent and you believe. You turn from your sin and say, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life completely to you. Oh, don't leave this campus. But you see, when you put your faith in Jesus, something happens. Your life changes. You live differently. We see it right here in the life of this Philippian jailer. We see where the gospel not only protects him from suicide, the gospel takes root in his family's life. He shows compassion to Paul and Silas by bandaging up their wounds. He's healing them. He's taking care of them. The whole family gets baptized. Then they eat a meal together. Isn't this so good? A picture of how the gospel changes someone's life. Compassion, hospitality, generosity. This is what happened to Lydia, as we saw earlier in chapter 16. And now it's happening in the life of this Roman soldier. Because Paul and Silas counted it all joy as they faced this trial. And we see what happens. Life change. Salvation. Gospel growth. Brothers and sisters, when we face trials of many kinds, let's count it all joy. As you face the cancer diagnosis, count it all joy. When you're given the pink slip, count it all joy. When you have a rebellious child, count it all joy. When you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from, count it all joy. Why? Because our joy is not dependent upon circumstances, but upon the presence of Jesus Christ with us. That He is with us through the trial. He's with us as we experience pain, and never for a second will He leave us. No one can snatch us from His hand, John 10. You're held fast in the omnipotent grip of Jesus. And so you can face tomorrow with joy and purpose and gladness because your joy is not dependent upon circumstance, but upon Christ. And your joy in Jesus 
is an evangelistic tool to reach your family and your neighbors and your coworkers with the gospel. Because they're going to see your hardship and be like, how in the world do you have happiness right now? And the answer is simple. His name is Jesus. And Jesus changes everything about me. And he promises that my suffering right now is not permanent. It's temporary in light of the glory that's about to be revealed to me. And so as I face this trial, I can do so with joy because I know that God is up to something far bigger than I can ever ask or imagine. God is working in and through my pain to accomplish something that is so far superior and significant than anything this world has to offer. That's how we respond. Confidence, conviction, the truth of the gospel, and it's full of joy. Third thing I want you to see in the text is the strength of Jesus for the church. It's been an eventful night. The next morning, the police show up with the authority to let Paul and Silas go. Now, Paul could have said, Hallelujah! Praise God, he answered my prayer. Let's go home. But he doesn't. He leverages his rights as a Roman citizen, verse 37, and lets them know, hey, what y'all did to us last night, that was wrong. That was unlawful. You see, to flog a Roman citizen not only puts now the city of Philippi in danger of Rome's wrath, but it puts the magistrate's jobs in danger. And Paul knew that. So instead of getting up and walking out of prison scot-free, Paul sees this as an opportunity. He tells them, we're staying right here in jail until they come and escort us out. What is Paul doing? Paul sees this as a strategic opportunity to protect his infant church plant from more persecution. If the people of Philippi get a wild hair and want to have another mob against Lydia and her household or against this slave girl or against this Roman prisoner, uh, jailer, and his family and any other believer in the church, the magistrates will now be much more likely to step in and stop it from happening. You see, Paul's a great leader. He's being very strategic here. He's making sure that he's protecting the church to the best of his ability, saying, you will not touch my people. He's leveraging himself. Think about this. He was willing to put himself in harm's way by taking the beating, and then after going into imprisonment, it wasn't until afterward that he leveraged his Roman citizenship to protect the church. He's willing to take the bad so that he might give the good for the good of God's people. Love this. And by the grace and power of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ is being protected and strengthened. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What about Westwood? What about us today? It's your impact point. It's this. Be encouraged. Jesus is good, and he is up to good in your life and church. You may be coming this morning carrying a heavy weight. You're burdened. You're tired, exhausted, and stressed. Be encouraged. Jesus is good. And he is up to good in your life and in your church. There's one more thing. There's a long-standing tradition that records that the head of a Jewish household would start their day each morning with this prayer. 
Thank you, God, that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. What do we see in Acts 16? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Jesus is building his church through the very people that the Jews despised. Look at the audacity of God that the stones that are going to be built around this church as foundation blocks a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Paul would later write in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The building blocks for the first church in Europe Nobody saw this coming. This is a start of a great church. You see, God loves to use the least expected to do the unexpected. Even using people like us. And indeed, Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. And the gates of of a Philippian prison will not overcome the church. Be encouraged. Jesus is good and he is up to good in your life and in your church.